world's a treasure. It's been telling us to leave for a while now. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save the world. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Welcome to another episode. We've seen several movies since the last time we talked to you and we talked to each other about David Fincher's Gone Girl. The fall movie season, we're right in the thick of it right now, and we have a new release from Christopher Nolan, one of our favorite filmmakers, so it's always a big event when one of his movies comes out, and this time he goes to deep space. We've also got a new movie from Dan Gilroy, the longtime screenwriter who wrote and directed the film Nightcrawler, which stars Jake Gyllenhaal as a late-night crime journalist, and we're also talking about the Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu film Birdman, starring Michael Keaton. So, three big releases here, Corey, and a little bit later we'll talk about some recent news from Pixar, one of our favorite studios and creators in general in the film world, and some news that they released that upset Corey a little bit and sent him on a bit of a Twitter rant, but we'll get to that a little bit later. We'll get to that a little bit later, but first, Corey, I think it's probably appropriate that we start out with one of our most anticipated movies of the fall and really the year 2014. We have the latest from Christopher Nolan, the director of obviously the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, The Prestige. You know his credentials, and now he has arguably his most ambitious film to date, technically and perhaps thematically, with Interstellar, which stars Matthew McConaughey and Hathaway and others as astronauts who must find a way to either save their planet or the human race by venturing out into deep space and finding other galaxies to find this whatever it is that may save humanity and Earth. So, Corey, we're going to get into a little more detail with this movie than we did with Gone Girl, where we were very Mm tight-lipped. It's hard not to talk about the details of this movie that Christopher Nolan, who in the past has always done this, kept so secret. He was so secretive about this film. He was very tight-lipped with the marketing for this, which may have been a detriment to its performance at the box office this past weekend. But I just want to know from you, because it seems like this movie is already very polarizing among critics, Mm -hmm. especially who either love it or really hate it. And that is surprising. I mean, Christopher Nolan generally has been polarizing in a way, I guess, especially with his last two films, mainly the way he ended the Dark Knight trilogy. But people have been generally positive about his filmography, especially his non-Batman movies like Memento, The Prestige, and Inception just a few years ago. And I am, as noted on this show, a big fan of those movies, even bigger than his Batman movies. So I had the expectation that we would be wandering back into that territory, so my anticipation level was very high. You're a big fan of the Batman trilogy, maybe not so much how he ended that trilogy. Not a big fan of The Dark Knight Rises, so I want wonder if you carried any sort of animosity into this experience and did you feel like he had to rebound or regain your favor as a fan of his and did he do that well i did not carry any animosity into this screening because when it comes to a filmmaker willing to take an audience on a journey they've never been on before to take an audience and show them something they've never seen before in films like The Prestige and in films like Inception and even to tell a superhero story that has a massive scale as, well, his Batman films do, particularly even though it's a film I don't particularly like that much, The Dark Knight Rises, which is told on a massive, massive scale. You know, you can always count on Nolan to do that. And the idea of Christopher Nolan heading into deep space to find what's out there and and citing so often as he has he has done 2001 a space odyssey the stanley kubrick film is is a major influence on this i think that's understandably something that builds quite a bit of anticipation quite a bit of hype so now that interstellar is actually out does it deliver on the scale of stanley kubrick's 1968 sci-fi masterpiece i think it's pretty safe to say that it does not but if we are measuring every movie on the scale of is it 2001, I think we're doing a disservice to an awful lot of movies. I would characterize my own response to Interstellar, which is 
you know, ambitious on, you know, in a way that very few mainstream filmmakers get to be today as fairly mixed positive. It's a film that is really easy to step back from and say, all right, I see some seams here. I have some issues. What are the characters doing? Who are these people? And why do they all talk like that? Why do they all talk like screenwriters, essentially? It's a movie that while this has always been a criticism levied at Nolan, seems less elegant with the massive amounts of exposition that its characters are required to deliver. I mean, Inception is full of it, too, but something about that movie seems to move so quickly as so that you don't really notice it. Interstellar, not so much. The first two hours of this three-hour movie are somewhat burdened with pretty heavy screenwriting loads. And, and honestly, as far as the visual element here and the scale, you can't help but feel that, well, I don't know that Christopher Nolan exactly showed us much that we've never seen before. There are ideas in this film that have never been expressed before, but as far as the sort of visual grandeur and palette up to a certain point, I don't know that we got that here. Now, there is a point in this movie near the end of the film where things go bonkers in a completely delightful way that I really responded to. But as a fan of science fiction, you know, this was something that didn't seem to me to be incredibly 100% original. It wears its influences pretty proudly on its sleeve. That being said, it's such a well-told story that you can't help but get swept up in it and even though i kind of wanted it to have a bigger impact on me personally by the end of the film and the way it resolves the fact is that christopher nolan for the first time in his career does focus a great deal on the human element and on interpersonal relationships particularly one interpersonal relationship between a father and his daughter and how that plays out over an unbelievable amount of time and the fact is he's moving into new territory himself and mostly succeeds. That's, I guess, how I would sum this up. It is mostly a success. I've heard that description of this movie, like you said, for the first time he focuses on the human element. Uh He plays on emotion and really sort of stretches that element in a way that he hasn't before in previous films. I disagree with that because I felt emotion in The Prestige from the Christian Bale character especially. I felt it in Inception between Leonardo DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard Mm -hmm. down the stretch of that. I felt it in the Dark Knight trilogy too, especially with the Bruce Wayne character down the stretch of the third movie even. I felt it there and I saw it and I think that he achieved that in those films. Maybe not as much as he does in Interstellar, but it was less of, I guess, the focus those times than it was this time. Obviously, he's going for something a little bit different, but... I think it's a really dangerous thing to do, to have the expectation that Christopher Nolan is just going to take us someplace we've never been before just because he's done it before and just because he's Christopher Nolan. But I think this film positions itself with its lofty ambitions of being the definitive interstellar space travel Well, I never heard Christopher Nolan say that. I never saw it in the marketing necessarily, them saying, you've never seen anything like this before. I think that those are our expectations sort of manipulating our anticipation and experience going into this movie instead of judging it once we see it. And because we've seen something like Inception, which Christopher Nolan, he can hang his hat on that as being something that is proudly 100% original and something that was such a huge risk for a studio to take in terms of giving him $200 million to make this movie that was based on an original idea and it paid off in such a huge way. So it's normal for us to expect them to do that again with this movie and for him to reach the heights, I guess, in terms of concepts that he brings to the table and executes on such a large and massive scale. And this is told, I think, on almost equally massive a scale in some cases. the scale possible. Yeah, for sure. And it's beautiful. I think in, in many ways it's spectacular. And I really bought the movie during the first act. Mm-hmm. I loved when we're on Earth and when Matthew McConaughey has in his daughter, Murph, played by a young actress, Mackenzie Foy. Yeah. When they're sort of drawn into this plot of 
why earth is dying yes. and and why humans have to save themselves i thought that it was really effective i thought it was really set up well and with christopher nolan it, it seems like you said people talk like they're screenwriters and people emphasize more or perhaps notice more that we have these characters like say ellen page in inception where she is acting as this audience surrogate yes. and everything is having to be explained to her and us as the movie goes along matthew mcconaughey as the protagonist in, in this is kind of that in this entire movie and like you said they're rolling out expository dialogue throughout the entire thing and a lot of it is stuff we might not understand because a lot of times it's just scientists speaking science and sort of talking about the bones and inside baseball of what it is they're doing out there in space and what they must do so it kind of moves as fast as Christopher Nolan tends to and leaves you behind in some areas but I don't think it talks down to us that much because I think in the end with Christopher Nolan I think a big strength and, and sometimes a big weakness of his is he's a very cerebral guy and his films are very cerebral but in the end he makes popcorn films obviously with the Batman trilogy but same thing with Inception and, and to some extent the prestige which I, I still think is his best movie but I'm this coming too, around to that actually yeah, this movie goes bonkers like you said and and there's a point halfway through with the introduction of a, a character and a direction this movie takes a left turn I guess that it takes where I think it's either gonna make or break it for the audience and and then it just gets even wilder from there but I was in and this feels as much like a Nolan movie as anything I, yeah, think, I think he's at the top of his game as is with the case with all of his movies it's gonna deserve more viewings but I was very satisfied here again our anticipation level is obviously sky high but it's just an overall different experience you know I'm glad that he has sort of escaped the trappings of this comic book trilogy that he was in but he was able to do that with the other films that he made after the first two Batman movies but I like seeing him in this territory and again while I think it's dangerous for us to expect him to show us something we've never seen before he tends to do that and while you may not think he does it on the same level as he did in the Batman movies and especially Inception I think he does it just enough here and entertains primarily yeah you know it is entertaining and I have to admit I was pretty caught up in the first act too it never lost me you know, I, I was never totally brought out of it. I was always caught up in it. But it threatened at points, such as a rather interminable monologue Anne Hathaway's character has about two-thirds of the way through the movie, such as the left turn that the movie takes, thanks to its special guest star, that I'm not really sure I 100% understand the motivations of. Yeah, there's kind of the simple conceit of love conquers all right. that this movie sort of carries to the bitter end. It gets a little sappy. Yeah, for Christopher Nolan, especially a guy, like you said, who doesn't normally do that. And who better than Anne Hathaway to deliver a theme like that with so much sap? I mean, she's somebody, I think, who sort of grates on people these days. Right. And I think she's actually very good in this movie. And, and I sort of went with it because I think that feeling, that theme that he explores, but mainly that feeling and, and the way it's conveyed, especially between Matthew McConaughey and his daughter in this movie, I think it's entirely earned. And it's thanks to those performances. I don't know. I think Nolan kind of hits the nail on the head emotionally in this. He might reach for the stars, so to speak, when it comes to nailing that in the way that he hasn't before, but I think he did it just enough, and it turned out to be really effective for me. I feel like the last scene, the scene that kind of resolves that relationship at the very end of the film was something of a belly flop. Yeah. A little bit. It felt like... And this is probably something we will have to talk about off mic, you know, in, in when we can spoil the hell out of it. It just felt like it was rushed. And yeah. I feel like one of my major issues with this film, it all kind of goes hand in hand, is that perhaps this film is trying to do way too much in even a pretty extended three-hour runtime. I don't know that... I mean, I don't have a problem with Anne Hathaway in this movie, and I don't have a problem with her in general. I think she's fine with what she's got, but the point is she doesn't really have that much here. She has a relationship to another supporting character, played by Michael Caine, that I suspect was intended to parallel Matthew McConaughey's relationship with his own daughter, but that never really goes anywhere because those characters are kind of perfunctorily dealt with to say nothing of the other two astronauts on the mission Wes Bentley and David Giassi who they're fine but they don't do very much they don't have a whole lot to do and then 
As the film progresses, it's intercut with scenes that take place back on Earth as characters we've come to know, played by Jessica Chastain and Casey Affleck, to name a few, are dealing with the increasingly dire situation and the the ticking clock of solving a particularly tenacious scientific problem in order to save humanity. The assumption is that the trek into deep space has failed because communications don't take place. And I didn't really get anything out of that. The cutting back to Earth just kind of fell flat for me because you have this high drama going on on the other side of the galaxy and then some pretty mundane, not very weighty drama that I feel was meant to be sort of parallel to one another in you know the stakes. I mean, think back to Inception and the amazing job Nolan and his editor Lee Smith did at cross-cutting between different levels of reality and you have these parallel action sequences I mean the climax of that film feels like it runs 45 minutes long and the tension is sustained all the way through in this movie there are points where I feel like they were trying to accomplish something similar but you cut back to earth and I'm just kind of like oh there are a bunch of books. Yeah, I think that's fair and I think that you're way more invested in what's happening out in space so it's almost not even necessary for them to cross cut back to what's happening right. on earth. It's like we'll catch up on that later. That's just true, but you know there there's a character who who is so pivotal on earth to what is happening in space right. as it relates to Matthew McConaughey and how he sort of has to figure out what he's doing and why he's doing it. So I get it, but you're right. That's fair. You go back to the climax of this, not so much the climax, but you mentioned a final scene that didn't totally work for you. It kind of reminded me of, or when you talk about it now, it reminds me of something like True Grit, for instance, where at the end of that movie, we have the same characters, but we have different people playing them, right? And after we've spent an entire movie with them, they're gone. And so we're having to rely on these performances to, in a very short amount of time, capture that same character that you've come to love and invest yourself in and care about. I think that, in a way, is similar to this. Mm. This movie obviously plays with space and time, time specifically, and that affects who plays whom. And it feeling rushed may have something to do with that. I don't know, but perhaps it's just plot that you have more of a problem with but the pace worked for me it didn't feel like three hours no it doesn't honestly things really kind of slowed down for me more so during the final third i agree with that even though all of it is happening i feel like as things start to wind down and as a character on earth comes closer to solving this problem yeah you kind of look just like all right all right but i feel like for the first time perhaps in a christopher nolan movie i was kind of a step ahead Mm -hmm. of the characters in regards to a very central Mm -hmm. mystery. I kind of got there from the beginning. Right. I don't think that mystery is as revelatory as the film seems to think it is. It plays out kind of like a mix between the ends of AI, artificial intelligence, and signs. I see that. And, you know, there are these moments, these aha moments that these characters have that they keep as they're figuring it out we're not really figuring out much we're just kind of watching them do it yeah there's no moment that is similar to the last couple of shots of the prestige for example where you're like oh my god right it just kind of happens yeah just kind of like squirts out right and yeah it's not as satisfying i guess but just sort of the immersive experience the epic scale that nolan has a hold of like no other filmmaker right maybe i think it's enough to sort of get it by yeah i don't think that this movie necessarily has shortcomings story-wise like i'm no totally fine yeah with it. I, I like the story i mean don't get me wrong you know i got issues with it but everybody should see it yeah because there's simply just nothing like it. For sure. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the space footage and the way he shot it is really glorious and to be expected from him. It's hard to just keep exaggerating about the work that Hans Zimmer does. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, but he just flat out tops himself. And I don't know how you feel about it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think the score is amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Especially there are a couple of sequences where the same theme plays out and it's this big grand huge swell 
of a theme in this movie once when Matthew McConaughey is leaving mm-hmm. and has made the decision to leave his family behind and go on this mission and then you see a little later on when they are taking the next step this is in the last act of the movie yeah. and a couple of characters are separating from each other and parting ways it's a really beautiful moment and an aspect of his score that he uses here is this very deep low organ over and over and it's just fantastic and it's great to see or hear Hans Zimmer experimenting at this age and really finding himself at the top of his game this late in his career well you don't hire Hans Zimmer for subtlety no not at all and this is certainly not a subtle score but it's not a subtle movie and of the type that Christopher Nolan tends to make needs something that bombastic and it's a fan it's just fantastic and this is a year honestly where there aren't too many memorable scores that I can recall immediately. Maybe the Grand Budapest Hotel, Alexandra Displah, but uh, this is, I mean, it rockets to the top of the list of original scores this year, if only because of lack of competition. But <laughs> Well, I think it would anyway. I think it would anyway, yeah, too. It's huge. It's, it's I mean, really the Gone awesome. Girls score is also very good. And yeah, that's yeah, true. There are, but like you said, there are a handful of them out there, but Zimmer is going to be at the top of the list no matter what. you got to think so. But yeah, so Interstellar, I want to see it again. I mean, I'm going to, obviously. I'm going to see it again, Just too. because it's Nolan, but I highly recommend it, for sure, because... I mean, it's just Nolan doing his thing, and I think he does up his game scale-wise, and he, he delivers some of the best footage just on site that he ever has. And I like the performances in it. I think Matthew McConaughey is excellent. Yeah, he's really good. So I, I do recommend it for sure. Yeah, I got issues with it, but, I mean, like I said, it's the, it's the sort of thing you, you just have to see. Yeah. You my fill-in operator? I don't think so. I'm Lou Bloom. I have some footage for sale. A stringer? What? Who do you work for? At the moment, I work for myself. Okay, we'll see Frank out there the way you came. Uh, what's the time to? Well, six. What do you have? Something I'm fairly certain you'll be very excited about. So this is kind of a cheap transition here, but we mentioned scores, and there not sure. being very many recognizable ones this year. I think there are two, actually, in the next two films that That's true. we're going to talk about. They vary in effectiveness, I'd say. Well, the next film we're going to talk about here is Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, which got a wide release. It released on Halloween. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal as this guy Lou Bloom, this guy who sort of comes out of nowhere, this frail, gaunt-looking man who is a bit of a con man slash thief, just hood in general, who seemingly has no direction in life until he opens his mouth and explains that he has high ambitions and has a purpose. He just hasn't quite figured out what it is until he stumbles upon a wreck on the side of the road and sees a journalist drive up and start filming it and learns that you can do this. You can be a late-night crime journalist in Los Angeles and sell graphic footage to news services for money. And that is how he decides to move up in the world, to conquer this industry in any way he possibly can to sort of achieve his own personal American dream. And I think that this is an American dream movie, if there ever was one. Jake Gyllenhaal, an actor that in the past... I've not been a big fan of before. Even though I like several of the movies he's been in, he's an actor who, for instance, with David Fincher's Zodiac, I think that's a movie that works extremely well in spite of Jake Gyllenhaal being the lead actor in it. I think he's a guy who has in the past brought movies down Mm. in a way, given how essential his roles are. But with this... I think it's much different. This is probably his best performance. It's a movie that people get so wrapped up in because of his performance, but even though so many people out there are praising him and the job he did and the weight he lost and the physical transformation and how effective the performance is, and it's all there, Dan Gilroy is the star of this movie. I liked Nightcrawler a lot. I think that it explores Los Angeles in a way that we haven't necessarily seen before. It gets a great performance out of an actor I'm not a big fan of. I think it's written sharply. It criticizes the media, I think, better than some movies that have come out this year and and were a little more on the nose about doing that. I think it does that better, and it's just more generally exciting than most movies this year. And I don't know, like Nightcrawler just feels fresh to me, and that's something I think is worth getting excited about right now, this time of year especially. 
Well, I just saw this mm-hmm. today, and I kind of went nuts for it. Yeah. In the same way that you just described, it does feel fresh. And, you know, it feels, to keep it in the Gilroy family, similar to how I felt after seeing Michael Clayton, uh-huh. which was written and directed by Dan's brother, Tony. Who produced this. Who produced this. Yeah, it's sort of traffics in similar territory as many other movies have in the past, but something about it, some spin just feels fresh and new and vital. And like Michael Clayton, I'd say Nightcrawler is, as you mentioned, anchored by a tremendous central performance. And and Gyllenhaal is is an actor I've liked a lot in many things, but mostly recently. I mean, I I think, you know, you have your, your Donnie Darko and your Brokeback Mountain you know, sort of as outliers earlier in his career, but with movies like Prisoners and Enemy, both by uh, director Denis Villeneuve, in which he does really magnetic, great work. He's doing his best work now. He is absolutely doing his best work now, and it culminates in this film. Nightcrawler is, I mean, that's a tremendous performance. And it all answers the central question about what would happen if an individual with no sense of ethics or morality enters an industry that already has very little ethics and morality. And the answer is incredibly disturbing, but completely captivating situations with his eyes sort of bulging out of his head and his almost affectless delivery of these self-help book sounding mm-hmm. business textbook aphorisms mm-hmm. and that being the only way he knows how to communicate with anybody in his vicinity i mean this is one of the most terrifying but hilarious yeah. in a black way oh it's very uh, funny green sociopaths yeah. we've had in some time i mean he's like a shiftless a more shiftless patrick bateman yeah in a way and, and i think it's i mean i think it's just a tremendous character created by dan gilroy and brought to life yeah kind of an unstoppable force yeah he is here. going to get what he yes. wants it's- by any means necessary, yeah. because this is America, yeah, and this is the system that owes him, as long as he puts in the hard work, as he would say. Right. He's not morally ambiguous. No. <laughs> he, no. He shows exactly. And I think that this movie is about what lengths you will go to to get what you want yes. to be successful in whatever industry. He tries a few different things, sure. and he finds his niche. And I don't know if it was Jake Gyllenhaal or Dan Gilroy who talked about this, about how audiences might feel about a bad person succeeding. It's a success story, and it's the success of a guy you probably should not be rooting for. Right. You don't want him to succeed, no. because the way he's succeeding, he's doing terrible things. Right, and, and we talked about this in our last show. I thought about the movie Gone Girl a uh-huh. lot after I saw this, because I mentioned in our last discussion that there's a character in that movie, and I think at this point we can say the Amy character, yeah. who is a character who is not morally ambiguous, She's a bad person who gets what she wants. Mm -hmm. And there are audiences out there who have trouble with that character sort of getting away with murder, so to speak. Perhaps in both cases, literally. And I think that you're going to find more people liking this character more than her. I found myself laughing at him. This movie's funnier than that. I mean, that movie definitely has humor in it, but this has a lot more. But you find yourself, I don't know, feeling a little hypocritical in recognizing the double standard of why is it okay for you to laugh and maybe root for this, laugh at and root for this character and it's not that time. And by the end of it, I think, I'm not. I hate this character too. I love watching him, but it feels wrong enjoying this experience as much as you do. And it sort of hurts similarly to see them get away with what they get away with. Yet, I think that there is a sect of people who are okay with it here and not okay with it there. Yeah, you know, I, I would say I, I find Gone Girl to be, you know, more of an overt comedy, I think, than Nightcrawler. And I think I would say one of the differences between the responses to these characters is that Nightcrawler lacks a moral center. We don't have an audience identification character who is particularly effectual. They're all pretty rotten. They're, the, well, There's one in there that I think... You've got like the guy who plays Ted Chow on Mad Men, who's yeah. like Rene Russo's newsroom right. co- uh, cohort, <laughs> who's he's just kind of like the yapping he's brushed dog. off to the he, side. Yeah, though. Nobody he has no he has no him. power in this story. And then, and then you have Jake Gyllenhaal's intern character, yes, Rick. Uh, Rick, played by Riz Ahmed, who is great. He's fantastic. 
And the poor guy just needs work and is willing pretty much to go along with anything until he realizes just how deep he's gotten. Right. At which point it's just too late. Yeah, well, then he figures out how to survive right. in that world. And that's such a compelling, again, darkly funny relationship because of how Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Lou Bloom, interacts with poor Rick. And it's basically, again, just these business school aphorisms about being successful and promoting a successful image to everybody and and getting out there yep. and seizing the day he's it memorized is, lines from textbooks it like is you said tremendous yeah it's it's so queasy and at the same time so darkly funny yeah their scenes together might be the best in the movie when they're sort of out on the prowl looking for these things to cover and shoot and they're fantastic this movie is just generally electrifying yeah the sequences involving the shoots and there's a car chase in this movie I, it's awesome. that is on the level of the best ones out there. As I'm watching this, I'm like, Dan Gilroy needs to make Fast and the Furious movies, man. I, when that happened, I was like, I don't know when this movie turned into this type of movie, yeah. but I, I'm oh so happy right yeah. now. Fantastic. Renee Russo. She's is very good. Too. Very good. She's the wife of Dan Gilroy. Yeah. And he wrote the movie Free Jack from back in the early uh -huh. 90s. She co-stars in that. I think he wrote the movie Two for the Money. Yes. Maybe that he did. she co-stars in. So they have an interesting working relationship. Yeah. And it's good to see her getting work at this point. And it's funny because they comment on the age at one point sure. in the movie when Jake Gyllenhaal, she says, I'm old enough to be your mother, I think, or something like that. Right. I'm <laughs> twice says, as old as you. Right. I like older women. I prefer older women. And just the look in his eyes, like you said, these these eyes that are just constantly open, never blinking, and so fixed on what they want. Very scary stuff. And the scene in which she, re I think it is that scene, the scene in which she fully comes to realize how between a rock and a hard oh, place man, she is. The monster he is. It is incredible it's, it's just dynamite yeah and it's disturbing but hilarious another person i want to mention quickly bill paxton is in this movie he says bra a lot he is what's up bra awesome yeah he's really film. funny and you know at this point we kind of have an idea of who bill paxton is he seems comfortable with his career what i would i guess call late in his career now after doing multiple seasons of something like big love and finding smaller roles in in movies like Edge of Tomorrow mm -hmm. and Haywire, where he doesn't have a ton to do. In this, he reaches back into the True Lies bag of tricks, <laughs> in Aliens even, and he channels that charisma that we haven't seen from him in a while, and he's fantastic. He's a, It's a sleazy charisma, oh my but, gosh. It's, but it's a charisma. Yeah, that Bill Paxton rears his head again, and he's yeah. great. I'm talking about putting some heavy digits in our pocket, bro. Thank you for offering me the position, but working for myself is more in line with my skills and career goals. Take a few days to think about it. No, you'll need to hire someone else, and I don't want to hold up the process. You want to be on the inside of this, man, because I'm going to be tag-teaming every call. You keep talking like it's something that I may be interested in, but I'm not. You don't even understand the offer. If you did, you'd be f***ing sucking my dick. you asking me questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? I feel like grabbing you by your ears right now and screaming in your face I'm not f***ing interested. Right now, if somebody were to say, what should I go see that would in be theaters? My I'd say Nightcrawler, yeah, for sure. I mean, absolutely. I'd hate to call it a crowd pleaser, because whatever crowd this pleases is sick in the head, maybe, but it's exciting. It's probably my favorite film in wide release at the moment. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's one of my favorites of the year. Yeah. And I I did just see it this afternoon, so maybe I need to let it percolate. It's, yeah, it's been, a, it's been like a little more than a week now since I've seen it, and it's still there. Yeah. And I, I mentioned the score. James Newton Howard does a score that I didn't see in him. It's I like a stirring, like, successful... Yeah like success story score electronic that, and it, it's almost like this ironic counterpart to what you're seeing on yeah. the screen it's like the sort of score you would get in like a rags to riches crowd pleaser from the 1980s yeah but it works yeah i love it yeah. and, you know from the word go the opening credits are fantastic here and and it's just a really again it's an intense movie too there are sequences in this that will put you on the edge of your seat yeah, not absolutely. to use that cliche but it really is exciting and and gets our highest recommendation right now. And shot by the great Robert Ellswick. Oh my gosh, so good. Yeah. That's one of the main drawing points for Absolutely. me going into this movie, and he delivers. He does. Big time. So Nightcrawler, still out right now. See it if you can.
the last movie that we've seen and are going to talk about here is the latest from Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu, a filmmaker that Corey on, I think, the last show or maybe our fall movie preview, whatever it was, has expressed that he's not a big fan of, doesn't like very much. He's a guy who made Amoris Peros, 21 Grams, and Babel, these movies that are darkly serious, largely humorless, and here he is attacking this meta dark comedy starring Michael Keaton as an aging acting veteran who at once in his life was the sort of was the star of a comic book or superhero franchise yeah. and is now after making some different choices in his career finding himself in a dark place and trying to revive what he may have left and find that gas in the tank if it even exists by staging a Broadway play based on a Raymond Chandler. Is that right, Raymond Chandler? Raymond Chandler. Yeah, Raymond Chandler. What we talk about when we talk about love. And so he he's staging this to sort of find new life as an actor and become relevant again in this modern time. And, and just the concept of that alone, the fact that he would try to <laughs> become relevant again by adapting Raymond Chandler on Broadway just seems like a bad idea from the word go but Inaritu shoots this movie in a very interesting way I think people already know now that much of it seems like it's shot in one long take or a series of them anyway so for that reason alone I don't want to just you know base my experience and how I felt about it on a technical merit Mm -hmm. but if there's one reason to recommend this, it's because of the work and the collaboration between Inaritu and Emmanuel Lubezki, the great cinematographer, guy behind Tree of Life, Gravity, among many other films. No argument from me. Children of Men. He does incredible work here. And the actors, like Michael Keaton, whose career obviously parallels that of the character that he's playing. Again, this this whole meta concept that people and this term that people are throwing around, sure, it is that. And you have supporting actors like Zach Galifianakis, Amy Ryan, Emma Stone, and Edward Norton, who in many ways is poking fun at his own career yes. in this movie. So, Corey, I asked you before about Christopher Nolan and any animosity you might have because of the past work that he had done and how you felt about mm-hmm. that film. I got to ask the same question sure. here. In terms of how you feel about Inaritu and what your expectations were about this film and how you feel about it now, did they change from what you felt going in? Did you have it in for this movie? And I don't know how you feel about it right now, but do you still have it in for this movie? Well, I wanted Birdman to be the film to turn me around on Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu because I feel like, say what you will about his heavy-handed direction in general, uh-huh. but he is a director of considerable technical merit. There's a reason that people, not me of course, connect with these movies. And generally, I think he's a talented guy. I just think that talent has been misguided. So when you say, oh, my next film is going to be Birdman, I'm going to stock it with a troupe of actors that appeal to me. Mm-hmm. I love Michael Keaton. I love Edward Norton. Supporting cast in this movie is pretty great. I'm going to get Emmanuel Lubezki to shoot it, and we're going to do all sorts of technical trickery that should make this, if nothing else, a dazzling viewing experience. I go into that thinking, well, this is going to be it. I'm going to finally unhesitantly recommend and enjoy an Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu movie. But no, I don't. I don't like this movie. I don't like this movie one bit. I really don't. It's, it never had a chance, Corey. It, it had it a never chance. never had a it chance. It had a chance. Be honest. No, I wanted this to be the one. <laughs> and this movie is a mess. Well, I, I won't argue that. I will say it that... It is a mess. Again, By design, maybe, though. It's technically beyond uh-huh. reproach. And if you are going to see this movie for the gimmick, go for it. Because it's a pretty great gimmick. Uh-huh. But this movie is exhausting. It's an exhausting experience that, that I'll agree with too. <laughs> adds up to very little, is seemingly confused as to what it wants to say about its central character, Riggin Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, and the whole ambition of producing art, other than maybe a tertiary, like, it's really hard to make art, guys. Well, okay, thanks. This movie has it in for modern film audiences it has it in for the superhero blockbuster hollywood style mm. of the time it has it in for critics okay obviously it has it in for obnoxious actors vain actors it has it in for young people in their twitter and their facebook 
It has it in for pretty much everybody. It has all of this vitriol going around, and I'm okay with that in a sort of farcical, heightened sense. And this movie mostly plays in that, but I feel like it's also trying to have its cake and eat it too by being sort of a heightened farce, but also stopping the action every once in a while. And so Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu can pound his themes into your head. I mean, as heavy-handed as he is with drama, he is equally heavy-handed here with this comedy that ends up not really being that funny, sadly, because I really like the comedic performances here. He makes everybody try so hard. They, They are acting their asses off. But to what effect? I don't know. I mean, apart from Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, and Emma Stone, who in this supporting cast really actually does anything? Oh, I think Amy Ryan is excellent. I think she's very good. I don't uh, well, as his ex-wife. She is perhaps the other character who actually has a function in the screenplay. Right. But side characters played by Naomi Watts and right. Andrea Risborough and even well, Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. But what do they do? What are they doing here? I mean. A lot of this movie is designed to be ambiguous as to whether or not what's happening is actually happening or is happening as a manifestation of Riggin Thompson's sort of troubled mind right. as he's troubled by his own ego and his fading star and this artistic ambition of his that he's literally put everything on the line for. And on the eve of that, enough catastrophes happen that he could be artistically and financially ruined by it. So I like the idea of this movie sort of being, you know, an artist on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But the camera moves all around the theater and focuses on everybody else, Mm -hmm. too. And I don't understand the point of that, considering Mm -hmm. half those characters are dropped well before the end of the movie. Important characters, too. Like, my biggest complaint about this movie is that one of the most exciting elements about this, other than the technical achievement that they have made here, is Edward Norton gives a great performance. He is and great. he's excellent. Yes. But there is a point in this movie where he, seemingly for no reason, is gone. And, and doesn't come back. Right. He doesn't come back. And, and all of his character stuff was not resolved. Right, and it makes you wonder, well, then why? Yeah. Because he comes in just like a lightning bolt and opens his character in such a self-deprecating, fantastic way how it sort of puts a spotlight on edward norton's own career and his reputation as someone who is very difficult to work Mm. with and somebody who seizes control of the creative process of productions that he did not have going into it so i thought that that was great and i think he is fantastic from beginning to end of his performance and whenever he's on screen he is just as exciting as seeing michael keaton back in action again because it's been a while really since i've thought of edward norton this way and it's good to see him in stuff like the past couple of wes anderson movies and sort of playing in that sandbox but this is him realizing the potential right. that we saw so early in his career. Let's go. Walk. Where are we going? Get you some coffee. Did I do something to disrespect you? Not yet. I have a lot riding on this play. Oh, is that right? Yeah. People know who I am. My Bullshit. Hey, they don't know you, your work, man. They know the guy from the bird suit who goes and tells coy, slightly vomitous stories on Letterman. Well, I'm sorry if I'm popular, Mike. Popular. You know, I don't give a Popular? Popularity is the slutty little cousin of prestige, my friend. Okay, I don't even know what the f*** that means, so... On this, and that's worth a, a, a lot. A lot, exactly. Right. Like, f- you. Yes. If this doesn't work out for you, you f- off back to your right. studio pals and dive back into that cultural genocide you guys are perpetrating. You know, the douchebags born every minute. That was P.T. Barnum's premise when he invented the circus, and nothing much has changed. And you guys know that if you crank out any toxic piece of crap, people will line up and pay to see it. But long after you're gone, I'm going to be on that stage, earning my living, bearing my soul, wrestling with complex human emotions that's what we do oh so that is that what tonight was about you wrestling with complex emotions was just about seeing if it's even alive seeing if it can breathe no this isn't the backlot rigging this is new york city this is how we do things where are you going they have coffee here i think that this is a work of art and i don't mean that in the way that someone would just call something a masterpiece Mm -hmm. i think that this is wholly unique 
and such an immersive experience for the audience in a way that we honestly haven't seen before. The way it's shot, the way it sounds, the way it's performed, the way it's staged. You talked earlier about Christopher Nolan and the expectations that we have that he's going to show us something we've never seen before. I think Birdman does that more than Interstellar does. I think Inaritu shows us something that a filmmaker has never done before. And if you just want to boil it down to that technically, then fine. But I'm fascinated with the Regan Thompson character. I think he is interesting. I think Michael Keaton is as good as advertised here and gives a very good over-the-top slash nuanced performance. He does things that he's never done in a Mm -hmm. movie before physically, comedically, We knew that he was gifted comedically early in his career, and I think he's fantastic here, but a lot of critics dislike this movie because of the shots that it takes at their industry. Yeah. And they're easy shots. They are easy shots. That doesn't bother me. The movie isn't very subtle about it. No. And again, you talk about social media and how kind of on the nose it is about that. I think that most movies are a little too on the nose about it, with the exception of something like Chef from earlier this year, which is great at handling that aspect of technology. Mm. It's, It's unique that way. But I think that this movie's just as hard on the artist's as it is on the audience it is. and the critics. I like the scene between him and the critic where this movie sort of makes its statement about that industry. I think it's really good. I think Michael Keaton is excellent. I kind of thought it was obnoxious. Oh, it, well, this movie, that's the thing, Corey, is all of the adjectives that you use to describe it. I agree with you. I just am on the positive end. This movie is wacky. It is exhausting and it goes down funny, but It depends on your tolerance for what goes down funny these days. I don't know. I think I'm on the positive end of that same perception of it. I think this is a love it or hate it kind of a thing. I think it is too. And I don't know that I necessarily love it. It's another one of those movies that I would recommend, especially for people who are serious about watching movies, because, I mean, there was a couple in the movie that walked out, and I think that this is going to be one of those movies that people walk out of in the middle of, because it's just weird. It's a very strange film, but it's one that I think is worth Wow. I can't in good conscience recommend it because I just I just the, the thematic messiness and the sort of haphazardness of how this is constructed, even as it is immaculate technically. I just find that it's a whole bunch of sound and fury that adds up to nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just ostentatiousness for the sake of ostentatiousness. And yes, it is impressive. But the fact that it adds up to very little mm-hmm. other than, you know, the sort of basic Oh, those artists. Right. You know, that just doesn't appeal to me. I I feel like the actors are better than this movie. I feel like somehow Inuritu's own ambition in constructing this movie is better than the material he constructed it around. It kind of reminds me of how people felt about something like I Heart Huckabees many years ago, where it's just filled with this philosophical dialogue, these themes, and all this malarkey, and what does it add up to? I love that movie. Right. So I guess I'm just, I don't know. I think it's similar in that way, but I like this better than that, maybe. I don't know. And I've liked Inaritu's movies more than you, but this doesn't feel like one of his movies, and I think he set out to maybe accomplish that, and I think he did, for sure. This is way more enjoyable and worth revisiting than something like Babel, which I've had no desire whatsoever to go back and watch. Birdman is something that I think deserves further dissection and, and contemplation, and, and it's a movie that makes you think, and it, it does have something to say, even if it's not very clear about it. It's fun in how they say it. Well, I will see this again. Mm-hmm. Certainly before I see Babel again, so I'll give it that. It is better than Babel. Does Michael Keaton deserve the Oscar? The Oscar win? Yeah. Well, we just talked about Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh I would not give Michael Keaton the Oscar. So you prefer Gyllenhaal over Keaton? Yeah. Okay. They're probably, I mean, I don't know. I I would prefer like Ray Fiennes from Grand Budapest Hotel over Keaton. Do you think he'll be in the conversation? Who? Keaton. Yeah. I think he's the front runner. To win? Yeah. Yeah. At least until I get a look at this theory of everything thing. Right. But, yeah, I think he's the front runner. I, I don't share that enthusiasm, but I understand it. You wanted to hate it, Corey. I didn't want to hate it. You wanted to. I really did not. I truly did not. <laughs> and you accomplished that. Congratulations. I just naturally came to that conclusion. And I don't <laughs> hate it. It's kind of difficult to hate a movie, again, as we said about Interstellar, that is this ambitious. 
I mean, this movie wants to do something profound. I just mm-hmm. don't think it comes anywhere close. Birdman is still playing in Birmingham right now at the Ray Vestavia 10. I don't know that it's going to play very long. I walked out of this saying, I think Birdman's going to make about as much money as that play within the movie would huh. make on Broadway. So we'll see how long it lasts. What's the point in prolonging the inevitable? We're all just one stitch away from here to there. That's it for the movies we've seen recently. Briefly, Corey, I want to talk about your latest Twitter rant against the institution that is Pixar, this studio that has given us so much to love and so many gifts in the form of these 3D animated movies that you've decided to crap on all of a sudden. Yeah, I just really shoved a thumb in their collective <laughs> with, eye. With the news. Such a jerk. With the news that they will be making Toy Story 4. We love that trilogy. We love the sort of bow they seem to have put on it. With the third film directed by Lee Unkridge, the news came out that they're going to make a fourth one, even though it seemed like it came to a very satisfying conclusion that I believe John Lasseter is planning to direct. Corey, you hit Twitter and basically said you were disgusted by this news and disgusted with the idea that Pixar would have the nerve to make more sequels, to do more sequels than they already had done, and pointed out that on the horizon we have more Toy Story, more Incredibles, and likely more other films Cars, that they the, have the made Finding in the past. Nemo right, sequel. right, the Finding Nemo sequel. Incredibles 2. Something that just didn't sit well with you. So I want you to explain yourself, because the sequels they have made so far have been really good, outside of Cars. Sure. And I think that we can acknowledge that the only bad movies Pixar has made so far have been the Cars movies. Mm. What else would you call bad? Well, bad. okay, I would not call... I wouldn't even call the Cars movies bad. They're bad. I don't think they're bad. But I would say, and and this is just going to blow your mind, sure. because I know that you love Brave, yes. and I know that you love Monsters yes. University. I don't hold them in nearly as high regard as you do. And I feel like since Toy Story 3, we have seen a slipping into sort of, I I don't know, artistic comfortability, a sort of settling for the same old, same old. We have our formula. We're going to stick with it. Maybe less so brave than the others, because I feel like brave tries to break that formula a bit. And I I like that movie. I just don't know that it is 100% successful at what it wants to do. So heading back to the sequel, Mm -hmm. well, is just further evidence that this studio as a whole has generally said, thrown up its hands and said, you know, we're a studio that introduced these great concepts Mm -hmm. that have done masterpieces like Ratatouille, like WALL-E, like Up!, we're in the franchise business these days, ladies uh-huh. and gentlemen. And even if we do make movies like, I don't know, the upcoming Inside Out yes. from Up! director Pete Docter, they will be few and far between because we think you need to see the continued adventures of the Incredible Family, of whatever the Cars names are, of Woody and Buzz, and the fishes from that movie that's about the fishes. Uh Well, let me ask you this. Did you share the cynicism back in 1999 before you saw? No, I was like like three. You were like three, right? I don't know. I was a child. Okay, well, in retrospect now that you've seen Toy Story 2 before, how did you feel about that? I was nervous about Toy Story 3. Uh, okay. How'd that turn out? It turned out fine. Yeah? But I One of their best movies? But I feel no, I don't think so. It's up there. No, uh, I it's don't think well, so. I would call it I would call it great Pixar though. I don't know that I would put I don't Toy Story I, 3? No. Okay. It's good Pixar. It's very good Pixar. Okay. It's probably their last very good movie, but I see after that a downward trend. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And I it think, worries me. Well, so one of the things that you said on Twitter was, "Okay, I've come to the, and I think that this was in just a little bit, but you say Pixar has peaked. I should have known Pixar has peaked by now with this news that they are going to delve back into these pre-existing characters and, and that was in just a little bit. Right. But okay, couldn't you have said the same thing before something like Ratatouille was made? The fact that they had made Toy Story, Monsters Inc., they had made Finding Nemo, one of their best movies. Okay, how could they get better? After this, and then comes Ratatouille, Wally, Up, Toy Story 3, and these other movies that I really like a lot. 
why shouldn't we trust Pixar, even if they're making sequels, something that they, in my opinion, with three of them, have been very successful at? The reason I wouldn't have said it before Ratatouille is because, you know, looking in the looking in the horizon, uh, movie about a rat who wants to cook, whatever. Movie about a robot, uh, old guy in house with balloons. Uh-huh. Okay, fine. But looking at that, I mean, I don't see what I think is kind of a cynical business-making decision to, you know, mine the same territory they've already mined. I see whether or not those movies actually turn out any good, they're trying. They're pushing the boundaries. And with this, and I I will allow that in their sequels, they have pushed boundaries. Toy Story 2, which I think is the best of that trilogy, is an example of that. But you can't help but just feel a little bit more nervous about that than we're making movies that are original concepts, that are our original concepts, and whether or not... Their next movie is an original concept. Well, I understand. Their next two movies are original. From one of their MVPs, Pete Docter. And I'm looking forward to it a great deal. And then what, The Good Dinosaur is coming after that, and it's going through sort of the same production issues that Brave went through. But I thought Brave turned out well, better than you did. But I got to look at Pixar's track record, and I got to think we're still in good hands, because I am of the belief here that they've made two bad movies, that John Lasseter has made two bad movies. If I'm worried about anything related to Toy Story 4, it's that John Lasseter's directing it. And I know that he's the King Dynamo of Pixar and he's responsible for it all and everything, but the Cars movies, they sucked. I didn't like them, and I still don't like them. They're not that bad. Well, and we're going to get more of it, too. In these shorts, we're going to get more Cars no matter what because of the monster cash machine that that it has become, and fine, I get it. But but that's the thing. Like, why is Pixar concerned with the monster cash machine? Because why Disney tells I, them to be. I know that, but like, why? I guess that's it. I mean, I guess what it boils down to is that, despite the prestige, Ratatouille and Wally were not on the high end of Pixar grosses. Ratatouille, I think, might be one of their lowest grossing films, mm. and I think it's their best film. Yeah. So maybe there is a correlation between the movies that sell toys and sell tickets. And, That's uh, a movie, too, that changed directors mid-production. I know, I know. So, But, you know, Brad Bird gives me a little bit more confidence. Well, now Lee Unkridge should give you more confidence he, in that yeah. he's able to step in and direct this movie and then when perhaps we didn't know who he was and didn't think he could do it, and he did it. I, I just, I you know, there's just something about it, something about this seeming idea of... You like these guys. We're just going to go back to them. I like The Incredibles. I'm fine with seeing another Incredibles movie. I think it'd be fantastic. I I'm would okay rather see another I would rather see another original Brad Bird story. Than sure. a, than You're a about to. That's out of the realm of Pixar. Well, sure. So, okay, but I get your point, but I'm just saying based on their track record and based on the fact that they've probably went through this before back in the late 90s and early 2000s and they gave themselves challenges where they could have just settled and made a bunch of Toy Story movies and Monsters movies. They didn't do that, and they tried new things, and I think they're still going to do that with this new original Pete Doctor movie, with The Good Dinosaur, perhaps, and I think we're going to see plenty of other original movies. In the early 90s, I think you probably could have said, Steven Spielberg peaked, man. He made Jaws and Close Encounters and E.T. and all the I'm not the, the Indiana Jones the Indiana Jones movies. So, you know, great career he's had. He's done great. He's been there, done that. Then he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, and he's made a hell of a lot of great movies ever since then. So I just think that it's a little unfair and it's a little irresponsible to go ahead and say Pixar has peaked and we're done with them, or they're as good as they're ever going to be, and they've been as good as they're ever going to be. I say just wait and see. Let's wait and see. Well, of course I'm going to see. Before we make that call. You know, you can't help but be worried because of what you just said. It would have been easier for them in the past to say, we're going to turn all of our successes into franchises, but they didn't, and they turned out some really great movies. And now they're saying, well, let's turn out the franchises, let's make that money, and I can't help but feel worried about that because I feel like whatever sort of rock star spirit of we're going to make what we want to make, we're going to follow our own path artistically, no matter what the marketing people tell us, I feel like that's 
I mean, you can't help but feel that it's like compromised. That's, that's compromised to a degree. Well, I don't know. Just depending on how Inside Out and the Good Dinosaur do, because uh, they they fit the the criteria that you're looking for from Pixar. Yes, you're right. And if they deliver, then I think you should feel good about it. And, and I, I still feel good. And if they're making sequels, at least it's Pixar that's making the sequels because they've proven that they're good at it. They've proven that they can be good at it. Uh huh. Not that they will always be good at it, because I don't know. But everything I've seen so far about Inside Out leaves me confident in that. That seems like a killer concept that appears to be pretty well executed. So we'll we'll see. Would you see an Inuritu Pixar movie, Corey? I would. Yeah. I would. It would probably be miserable, but I, but I would. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it. I think we're done here. One more note. Okay. Before we close out, Barnes & Noble started its semi-annual 50% off Criterion Collection sale today. Ooh. Yeah. So Thanks uh, for that tidbit. Hit that up. This holiday Is there season. Anything you've got your eye on? La Dolce Vita okay. and My Darling Clementine. Okay. And then uh, other stuff that I've picked up over the last little while that you may be interested in, Ben and listeners. <laughs> David Lynch's Eraserhead in a beautiful, beautiful Blu ray. The Innocence, the uh, adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, which is a fantastic horror film, and stuff that came out earlier this summer like uh, A Hard Day's Night, like Roman Polanski's Tess, and Red River. So there's a ton of stuff, a ton of great stuff they've been doing great work lately as they always do but there's something about this year with things like all that jazz and Itumama Tambien and, and Scanners and a whole bunch of other great movies that have received the full criterion treatment and I'm very excited about this sale awesome well check us out on aspectradioshow.com we're on iTunes find us search rate us review us we appreciate it check filmnerds.com find us on Twitter and Facebook at Aspect Radio and until next time I am Ben Flanagan and I'm Corey Kraft this is Aspect Radio thanks for listening